Jesus. Jesus' life and ministry and Jesus' method can really be articulated in that phrase that we're taking on as our own this year, one at a time. One soul at a time, making one disciple at a time, strengthening one family at a time. When Jesus would get his crosshairs on one person, everything else would just slow down and stop because that's the heartbeat of God. God looks for the one. He's not willing that any should perish, but he looks for the one. Maybe that's the way you feel this morning since you've stepped into this room. Maybe you feel like everything else has stopped around you and that you found yourself in the presence of a holy God. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he's searching for one today. My text this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I pray that you've already felt the drawing of the Holy Ghost here this morning, and I feel this word from the Lord is going to impart something to us, help us understand more, and help us to know what we ought to do. That's what it's all about. I don't want to just hear a word that informs me, but I want to hear a word that, that transforms me, that, that gives me instruction on what I ought to do. Because when we leave this building, we've all got life to live, don't we? I don't need to know necessarily what to think. I need to know what to do. I need to know what to do. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. This is what the word of the Lord says. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested. Everybody say manifested. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. I want to read that again. I just want to emphasize it, and I want to read it again. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That means the one eternal God was manifested in the flesh as a human being. Isn't that powerful to even think about? He was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. This morning, I want to minister from that text and from the word of the Lord on this thought, God's plan, one man. God's plan, one man. If you would, set your Bibles down and lift up your hands toward heaven. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together in the word today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to operate as it already has during our time of singing and praise and worship and fellowship. Lord, that your spirit would continue to minister as we go into your word together. Lord, help us to understand and to gain understanding. But Lord, more than that, let that understanding just be the foundation for what you would have us to do. Lord, lead us to action. Let your spirit prompt us and change the way we live when we step outside of these doors. Lord, do it for your glory so that your kingdom can be expanded, so your name can be lifted up in the earth. And we will give you all of the praise in the mighty name of Jesus. Why don't you clap your hands and give the Lord a hand clap of praise as you're being seated. God's plan, one man. One man. 
was going to be the foundation of our faith and the foundation of our salvation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Once he had created a world, he then created humankind. He put man and woman in a garden in Eden. And they enjoyed a perfect relationship with him. And perfection like that is such that one act of imperfection, one action of rebellion, one action of disobedience will shatter a system like that that is perfect, that is unadulterated, that is right in every way. One act of disobedience in a system like that, in an environment like that, will upset and send the entire environment into chaos and disorder. With one man's disobedience, with one man's rebellion, God's order was sent in a different direction. Satan, in this system of perfection, where man enjoyed a perfect, unobstructed relationship with God, Satan, your adversary, could not have the kind of influence that he wished to have. Satan, in that system, could not have the kind of dominion and the kind of power and the kind of influence that he wished to have. And so Satan made sure in the garden that there was a temptation that took place. There was one thing that the Lord God had told man and woman that they should not partake of in the garden. Everything was at their disposal but this one thing, and it was a tree, and the fruit of that tree, it was the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Satan knew that this was the one thing that God had drawn a line around, and he had told man that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had to make a thing in creation that man was not allowed to partake of, but that nevertheless was available to him. It was the foundation of having a free will. There had to be a choice. It was not the will of God that he have an army, a race of robots that just obeyed his every command unflinchingly and that served him without question. He wanted to have a relationship and a communion with human beings like you and I that was on the foundation of free will. There was a choice that took place that we wanted to be in relationship with him. And so we put this tree in the garden and said, Adam, Eve, this is the one thing that I need you to stay away from. I need you to make a conscious choice that you are not going to partake of the fruit of this tree. Satan saw such a system, an environment, and he knew that he wasn't going to see his ambitions realized in a system like that. That he was going to come up against a ceiling of influence that he so desperately wanted to get beyond. And so he made sure there was a temptation. One day he took the form of a serpent and he injected himself into a day like any other day. And he come up on Eve and he presented that first woman, Eve, with the temptation to do the one thing that God had placed in that garden that he had told humankind not to partake of, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And the adversary in that moment took it upon himself to twist the word of God. And he threw humanity into a temptation. It wasn't sin yet. Somebody needs to hear this today. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. The two are not synonymous with one another. There is an unmistakable line that can be traced from one to the other. But to be tempted is not the same thing as sinning. Jesus was in the wilderness and was tempted. But sinned not. Some of you face temptations and you allow the presence of that temptation to be condemnation to you. And it should not be so. It is not the will of God that every time you face a temptation of some kind, that you instantly fall into a pit of condemnation. The adversary would like you to fail to make the distinction between temptation and sin because when he's able to get you to believe that temptation is the same thing as sin, then all of a sudden he doesn't even have to get you to sin. He's already got you. Just by presenting you with a temptation. Well, he threw humanity into a temptation that day in the garden. And the problem was not necessarily the temptation being presented. The problem became that they did not have an understanding or a recollection of what God had said to them. Because Satan, the adversary, twisted the word of God in that moment. You can turn to Genesis chapter 3 and you can see it for yourself without us reading it in your hearing this morning. But the adversary twisted the word of God. And Adam and Eve failed to know what the word of God actually was. And they heard this temptation, which on its own was not sin. But because they were ill-equipped... God had equipped them, but they had not held on to his word. And because of that, they fell into sin. They fell into sin. Don't you know this morning that Satan, your adversary, he desires that very same thing for you? He's hoping to come up on you, saint of God, created in the image of God, and to discover that you also do not have an understanding of the Word of God. That you also don't have any recollection of the particulars of God's Word and what He has commanded you to do and how He has commanded you to live. He hopes that you don't know what God has said about you, who you are. The adversary hopes that you don't completely understand who you are. The adversary hopes that you don't completely understand what you're here to do and the plans that God has for you. Satan wants to sow chaos into your life, and he does it with this thing called sin. Sin is when we step outside of God's purpose and design for our life. One of the New Testament writers, even it was the Apostle Paul, he said it like this, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a pretty strong statement. That's a pretty penetrating statement. Whatever is not of faith, whatever doesn't proceed from faith, is sin. Is sin. What that means is when your actions aren't consistent with what you have said you believe about God, 
that's sin. I'm going to say that again. When your actions are not consistent with what you say you believe about God, then your actions are not coming from faith. And that's sin. That's sin. And so it came with the sin of one man. Sin was introduced into the world. Romans chapter 5 has a lengthy couple paragraphs about this very topic. But I'll draw out a couple excerpts to make the point this morning. In Romans chapter 5, it says, By one man's offense, death reigned through the one. We're talking about Adam. He doesn't name him in that particular sentence, but we're talking about Adam. Through one man's offense, death reigned over the entire human race through that one. And judgment, which came from the one offense, resulted in condemnation over the entire human race. And by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Many were made sinners. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church and he's helping us understand the implications of everything that happened all that time ago in the Garden of Eden. He's helping us try to understand why the world isn't the way that it should be. There isn't a person under the sound of my voice today that doesn't understand for yourself that the world we live in is broken. The world we live in It doesn't take maybe a day or a week to go by and you can look at something and say, that's just not the way that it's supposed to be. And you may not have intellect for it. You may not have rationale for it. You may not have logic for it. But there's something inside of every human being that knows when they see certain things in the world today that that's just not the way it's supposed to be. The Apostle Paul knew that, and he knew that there was a generation that was so far removed from the events of that garden that it would be possible to look around at the world today and to know that something wasn't right, but to not have an answer for it and to not know exactly how all this got the way that it did. And if you don't know how we got here, you can't understand how we're going to get out. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church, and he wrote to you and me, and he's helping us have revelation about where we are in the world today and that God's plan was about one man. It rubs us the wrong way sometimes when we hear about Adam and we hear about how his transgression is passed down to every living human being that's ever been on the face of the earth except Jesus Christ. It rubs us the wrong way whenever we think and we think to ourselves and we start to understand what the Bible is saying to us, that Adam's sin makes me a sinner. And then, inevitably, I always go, and I, when given the same choice that he had, I make the same choice. It rubs us the wrong way to think that we have that kind of representation working in our life. This person that none of us have ever met so many years ago made a mistake and became the representative for you and me. And because of his transgression, it makes me a transgressor and a sinner. It puts me and you in what feels like a no-win position. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. And we say to ourselves, I don't like that representation. I don't like the system of spiritual representation that this story and this doctrine of God's word presents to me. 
And you'd be right in that grating against you a little bit because it doesn't feel good to have somebody making a mistake in your stead and that being passed on to you doesn't feel fair, doesn't feel right. Every one of us has a track record behind us of brokenness and hurt and chaos that we can point to and say, I really don't like that. I really wish we didn't have a spiritual representation system like that. But it's within that system that the gospel grows out of. Because of the sins of one man, all were made sinners. So by the righteousness of one, one man, all will be made righteous. And that one man's name is Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. He was not born between a man and a woman. He was born between a woman and God. Half of his chromosomes are Mary's and half of his chromosomes come from God. Paul wrote Timothy, he said, he said, great is the mystery of godliness. I don't know by a lot, I don't, I, I don't know. That can't be recreated in a lab somewhere. It's an act of God. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. It's a miracle for every single one of us because God's plan is one man. It's difficult to fathom how much sin, how much brokenness has been released upon the earth since man first fell from their status and position in the garden all those many years ago. But God has always had a plan. Understand this about God. Nothing catches God by surprise. The prophet Isaiah said this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Nothing ever catches God off of guard. And while there may be a trail of brokenness and hurt and chaos in our world, and maybe even in your life, nothing catches God off guard. He has always had a plan. And it's foolishness to the adversary that one man, that one person, could make enough of a difference in such a broken and despairing and chaotic world environment. It stuns, it is foolishness to the adversary that one person could make such a difference in a setting like that that he could turn the tide of sin and corruption in the entire world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Paul writes and he explains further for us. And he says, for Jew, the Jews request a sign. And the Jews seek after wisdom. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block or a scandal. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God 
is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's plan that he's always had has always been about one man. How can one man turn the tide of sin and corruption and brokenness in the whole world and in your life? It's simple. He loves you enough to manifest himself. Great is the mystery of godliness that he manifested himself in human flesh. And he who knew no sin became sin for you. The foolishness of that type of plan in the reasoning. We would like something that's more grand. We would like something that's more complicated or complex. We would even like something that we would get a little bit more participation in. Because then I could gain a little bit of the credit. But we aren't permitted a plan like that. God's plan has always been one man. For the Jews, it was scandalous that God could be beaten and die for them. They couldn't conceive of such a reality. The Greeks saw the gospel of Jesus Christ and they couldn't, they, it didn't address all the philosophical things that they thought needed to be addressed all the points that they wanted addressed it just didn't it wasn't smart enough for them and the greeks said it was foolishness how something divine could become human how this man christ jesus could be fully god and fully man at the same time but that was god's plan god's plan was one man Foolish as as it may seem in the eyes of man, one man, Jesus Christ, died for the sins of the whole world. It wasn't a theatrical death. There weren't any special effects. But it was a painful, real, human death of a perfectly innocent person. What an extremely high price to pay. I alluded to it last week when I ministered out of Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1 on Sunday afternoon, that Luke's actions in writing those documents, those the gospel and Acts, showed us that Luke understood the heartbeat of God. Jesus had the ability, and not just the ability, but the willingness to stop and to focus his attention on just one. And Luke displays that he too caught that same spirit of ministry from Jesus of how he would operate, because when Luke opens up his gospel, he addresses it. He, he probably understood that there was going to be a wider publishing of these, these, the gospel and, and acts, that they were going to be printed and copied and, and published for other people. But as he wrote it, he was writing with one particular person in mind, and that person's name appears in both the first chapter of Luke and the first chapter of Acts. And this man's name was Theophilus. And something ignited inside of Luke that I believe is from the Holy Ghost, that same spirit of Jesus Christ that is willing to stop and focus on the one. Something igni- There was a burden that came on over Luke because he knew there was one person that needed to have this communicated to him. There was one person who needed to be persuaded. There was one person who needed to understand that there was a God who manifest himself in the flesh that loved him enough, that saw the brokenness, not just of the whole world, but as him individually as a person and was willing to do everything that he did 
and to set off a revolution that changed the whole world for one person. Luke caught that heartbeat of Jesus. One was enough to get the attention of God. And I want to do what I did last week. I want to do it again this morning. I'm here to advocate for the one. I'm here to advocate for the one and to say that one is enough for you to care about. One is enough for you to accept the call. One is enough for you to pray about. One is enough for you to get into the word of God and have an understanding that allows you to explain some things to a person that has questions. One is enough for that. If you didn't need any if you if you don't need any other rationale for that, you can look at the message from last week where Luke zeroed in on the one and it's evident that no one else no one would do that except that they caught the heartbeat. They got into alignment with the will of God. And then to look at the message this week and to see that God's plan is one man. And that because of the way God orchestrated the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation for the whole world, that it was centered around one person, doesn't that send the message to you and I that one is worth it? That one is worth it to God. And one should be worth it to me. Jesus went the distance for one. I've heard it said before, and I believe it, that if if everything that he did, Brother Uzel, had only been for one person, and one person only, that he still would have done it. Think of what that means for you as an individual. Think of that kind of focus and attention that the one God, the creator of the whole universe, would manifest himself in human flesh and would die on a cross for one, for you, for me. He went the distance, the full distance, the full distance. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he used this language. He said, God emptied himself. He emptied himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Let me read it in a more, that was the King James. Let me read it in a more modern because it says the words that I said a moment ago. He emptied himself. He, took, he, he, gave himself, he made himself of no reputation. That is to say, he emptied himself. This is the one who has all of the status. This is the one who has all of the majesty. This is the one who has all of the splendor and all of the holiness and all of the glory and all of the power. And the word of God describes it like this when he did for you and me what he did. He emptied himself. He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. That is a slave. Someone who is not a servant by choice. But he gave himself over to it and was made in the likeness of men. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. There's no better message that I can preach this morning than to say that there is a God who loves you enough. He's pure, he's holy, he's righteous in every way. 
and he manifested himself in a human body and lived a remarkably normal human life. Worked miracles. When I say normal, I mean it was a life. He experienced everything that we experience, but was yet without sin. And they took that perfect man, that perfect man, and they nailed him to a cross. And he died for the sins of the whole world. God's plan was just one man. The full commitment, let me say it like this, the full commitment, he went the full distance. The full commitment of one man unlocked the full potential of every person. Because you were, you were enslaved by sin. The book of Romans says it like this, you were under sin. Under, that feeling, that feeling of being underneath of something big and heavy, a rock, a boulder of some kind. Has anybody ever been trapped? Have you ever been trapped in a situation like that? Where you just, you, I mean, like you start, your heart rate starts going up. You start getting a little bit frantic and a little bit panicked because you're stuck underneath of something and you're not sure how you're ever going to get out. Those times, and there's many that have never heard this gospel and they are underneath such a thing, under sin, and they don't even fully realize it. That's maybe even more frightening. To be underneath of something, to be enslaved to something, and to not really know a reality that suggests that it could be any different. I've said it before recently. The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's looking for you. And Jesus is looking for the one. He's looking for the one that doesn't fully recognize, perhaps, how lost and enslaved they are. He's even looking for the one that has heard a message like this this morning, that there is a Savior and there is a God and there is a plan. But you're just starting to come to terms with just how enslaved the system of this world has made you. And you're looking for something to do about it. It's not just a matter of understanding that I said it before I started this morning, but Lord, help us to know what we can do because he's already done it all. It's not like we have to work to gain our salvation. There's just a faith that rises up that says it doesn't have to be this way. God's got a plan. He's got a man that did all the heavy lifting for me. All I've got to do is start standing up and walking. I've got to receive what he is willing to freely give me. Paul resolved this, and this is what changed everything about Paul. Paul came from a, he wasn't born into a Christian, into a believing disciple household. And when he got, when he made contact with Jesus, it changed everything about his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come in excellence of speech or of wisdom. He didn't, I didn't come with eloquent words declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. Let me read it in the Amplified Version just to expound it a little bit more. He says, I made this decision to know nothing. That is, I decided to forego all the philosophical or theological discussions regarding things that didn't really matter much at all. I, I didn't want to know anything among you. I made a decision that I wasn't going to focus on anything else except Jesus Christ and his and him crucified. And what that means is Paul was a very educated, a very sophisticated person. And there was a lot of topics that the Apostle Paul could have dwelt on. And no matter how educated or sophisticated you may feel like you are, in the world we live in today, we just have access to a lot of different things. Regardless of your level of understanding any of it, there's just access to all kinds of things, all kinds of topics that we can fixate on, that we can give our attention to, that we can give over our conversation to. But we, like Paul, need to take a message like this, that God had a plan, and that plan was just one man, and we need to make it the dominating force of our entire life. We have to make a decision, saints of God, that I've, I've decided to know nothing among you. I'm not going to spend time on things that don't really matter, because there's one thing that matters more than anything else, and it's me understanding and living, and walking in, and sharing, and teaching everything that I possibly can to as many people as I possibly can, that God has a plan, and it's centered around one person, the person, Jesus Christ. I want to be Jesus everything. I want everything about my life. I want everything about my conversation. I want all of my focus, all of my energy to be centered on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in that way, the plan of God that's fixated on one man who went the distance, he fully, he went the full distance for you and me. And in that way, he allows us to have the full potential of everything that God designed for you to be unlocked in Christ. What a powerful gospel. What a powerful gospel. That is the plan of God. And that was the key to Paul's life as the musicians come. When he got a revelation... He says it in one, of his, in one of his letters. I think it was Galatians. He says, I received it by revelation. And when he got a revelation of God's plan in Jesus Christ, nothing else mattered as much as that did. I'll say it another way. Instead of fitting Jesus in as an accessory to his life, Paul said, I'm going to reorganize my life around the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the call for you and I today. If you've never experienced the plan that I'm talking about, and you feel this morning as though there's something like a boulder, something pinning you down, you feel like you are under, enslaved to something that you don't want to be enslaved to anymore. You need to repent of your sins. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. 
and God will fill you. He will fill you with the gift of his spirit, the Holy Ghost. And when God's spirit, the Holy Ghost, starts to dwell inside of you, you'll know it because you'll speak in a language that you'd never learned before. There's just evidence. And some people think that's, that's weird, but here's what it does. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in the New Testament when somebody's filled with the Holy Ghost. They speak in other tongues. It's evidenced. If you've had that kind of spiritual new beginning in your life, then what it means for us, brothers and sisters, is that we need to get into alignment with the heart of God. Because the question remains hanging over us even this morning, is one enough? Would you pray for one? Would you study for one? Would you reach for one? Would you be kind for one? Stand with me if you would. This was the key to the apostles' life. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wrote, and he preached, and he taught, and he lived the whole story. Much like the story that I've I've done my best to communicate today. And he did it all to make this point. That God manifested himself as a human being. And part of his plan, his plan to redeem the whole world from the enslavement of sin was one man. And that's the plan of salvation. If you would, every hand raised, every eye closed, if you would, lift up your hands toward heaven and just begin to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is here right now. Would you begin to pray right now and just say, Lord, I need to know how to respond. I need to know what to do. Lord, I understand what your word says, but Lord, I need to know what my next move is. I need you to lead me and guide me. Maybe I've spoken over something right now and somebody already knows what their next move is. I want these altars to be open right now and I would that every Holy Ghost filled saint of God, if you would find your way up to one of these altar areas and you'd find your way up to a place in a posture of prayer, would you, these altars are open right now. Would you begin to respond because there's those in this room right now that they feel pinned down by the weight of sin, by the enslavement of the things of this world. And there's a freedom. There's a freedom that God wants to impart unto them. There's a freedom that God wants to release into this room right now. It's not the will of God that you live under condemnation. Maybe it's just that you've been experiencing temptation and you've allowed the enemy to convince you that to be tempted is the same thing as to sin and you've been living under a boulder, under a weight of condemnation that it is not the will of God that you live under that condemnation. I would that you would step out in faith right now and say, you know what, that's me. I'm not going to live under that kind of condemnation anymore. I want to be set free in Jesus' name. I need the blood and the power of that one man. I want it to be counted to me for righteousness. Come on right now, let your voices rise up. Let your voices rise up and be sensitive to the Holy Ghost.